Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, lead pastor Josh Carstensen continues a series called What is Going On, where we read the entire Bible in a year. The book of John has a clear purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, in this message, we zoom out a little and talk about why we ought to believe that Jesus is God, put our faith and hope in Him, and what it looks like to be a child of God. After the message and throughout the week, read the book of John. Also, check out nwhills.com slash hub, that's H-U-B, for additional resources like book overviews, reading plans, and application questions. Now, here's today's message. If you got a Bible, we will be in the book of John. I had a plan this morning. I was going to start out with a little story from elementary school, a story about a time when someone gave me a letter, and it was very straightforward, and it was to the point. I got a a letter that said, I like you. Um, you know, not, not beating around the bush anywhere, just like straight to the point, which was really helpful. Like, I appreciate straightforwardness. I now know who to avoid and to never pick on my team. But I got an even better letter 55 seconds ago when someone was walking in. They gave me a card, and it was a, another very straightforward message. And it says, cool Prius said no one ever... And yes, I have a Prius. Um, thank you. I will not name you in front of everyone, Chambers. But um, that was super cool. I'll just leave that right there. And I do think that sticker is funny. And I will not talk about my cool big truck right now either. But okay. Um, yes. John, like this letter, is very to the point. Um, he, he tells you exactly why he writes. You know, sometimes we've been going through the Bible uh, throughout this whole year, and, and sometimes it's like, yeah, I, I think I'm understanding what's being said. Um, we don't always know exactly why, though, but John just makes it very clear, um, starting with his opening prologue, um, really uh, clarifying it in the end with one very, very simple statement. He tells us exactly why he writes. Um, so we don't have to wonder today, as, as we're reading throughout the week this week, we don't have to say, man, I wonder why John was writing. Um, we, we wonder a little bit how the things that he wrote um, applied to why he was writing, but it, it should be clear as we read throughout the text, but he just makes it super clear up front. And so um, we're going to do that today. We're just going to look at the opening. Um, I'm going to talk about his final conclusion, and then we're going to really just chew on what his primary point was because we only have one week to do the whole book. So I figured it seems fair to do what he wants us to do. So would you stand with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. We're going to read his prologue, his intro, and then we're going to jump ahead to chapter 20 and read his final statement. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God... All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is a different John uh, than the writer. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For him his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now let's jump to chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can grab a seat. There's a small part of me that would just love to sit on this opening chapter and just on our own, just chew on this. There is, there is so much here. Um, there's so much here in this book, so much so that we spent nine months on this two years ago. Um, I was telling Megan to prepare for this message. It, it feels like you know, like you're dating someone for nine months and it was amazing. And then like two years later, you have a 30 minute date and you're like, what do you say in 30 minutes? It's just kind of weird. Um, but here we go. Um, we're, we're not going to just sit in this, um, but we'll do that tonight. So I would encourage you, if you can make it, come back tonight, six to seven thirty. We will sit in chapter one and then we'll also go to the end, uh, chapter 21. But I'll, I'll teach a little bit and, and I want to teach on just John's primary point. John is very straightforward, and he makes his claim, he makes his argument, he makes his statement. He says, this is my goal, this is why I write. I write for three reasons. I write because I want you to know that Jesus is God. I want you to believe in him, and I want you to become a child of his. And so we're going to just sit on those three things today. Um, As we get into those three things, I want to say a little bit about John, a little bit about who he is, and we'll talk a little bit about the text, which should help you in your reading this week. Uh, if you haven't caught on, I'm just inviting you, man, read on your own. Like, this is just to whet the appetite. We really want to be a church who opens up our Bibles at home. Like, we, we believe that this is a launch point. This isn't the final destination. Please, I encourage you, read John. And I'll just be upfront. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging gospel in some senses. It's not straightforward. I mean, you, you probably got the sense of that after reading what I just read. It's, it's not one that you just easily read, but like many of the gospels... Um, I, I was told recently it's like sucking on hard candy. You just gotta, you gotta do it for a while. You don't just want to bite into it and chew it. You gotta just let it sit for a season. And, and John is certainly one of those books. As we get into the book of John, we gotta know a few things about John. First of all, he is Jesus' closest friend, which says a lot about how he writes. 
Um, He's not writing an apologetic. He's not writing to give you the history of who he is. He's writing to say, this is who my best friend is. He's writing to say, this is the identity of Jesus. He is God. He is the God that your heart and soul longs for. He is what you need. And so uh, his writing is very different than the other gospel writers. Right? He, he doesn't start out with kind of the genealogy of how Jesus fits in. He doesn't start out with any birth story. Right? And that's how you would introduce a best friend. Right? I think about how many times I talk about my best friend. I've got a best friend since third grade. And, and I tell people about him all the time. And never once have I ever said, you know what his birth story was like? Like, I, it just doesn't matter. We're like good friends. I, I want to share who he is and what he's like. That's what John's doing. By the time John is writing, he's the last of the gospel writers. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written. They're already somewhat circulated at this point. And so he doesn't have to give all the details of of how he fits in. He's not giving an apologetic. What he's ultimately doing is he's writing to believers to encourage their faith. And he's saying, guys, you gotta gotta remember who Jesus is. You gotta hold on to who he is. Man, it's... It's an amazing, beautiful book. In, in the book of John, we'll notice that there are absolutely no parables, which is interesting. Um, side note, and I'm going to tell you this, and I want this to stay in this room, and I think I only have like a year or two left to be able to do this. Last night, we're brushing our teeth. I'm with my oldest daughter. She's 11. And, um, and we were late. We, we were up at a wedding in Portland. Ellery, our, one of our music uh, singers, you know, our intern, she, she got married. And so my daughter is, you know, she asks me, hey, what are you teaching on tomorrow? Which, first of all, is amazing. Like, who does that when you're 11? So I'm like, oh, that's great. And I tell her, oh, I'm teaching on John. And she goes, oh, that's my favorite. And I go, oh, that's awesome. I say, why do you like John? And she goes, I just love all the parables. <laughs> And and I'm thinking, like, there's no parables in John. But I say, you know what? Yeah, we do learn a lot about Jesus in John, and it's precious. So I just, I got a good laugh out of that last night. Do not say anything to my daughter. Like I said, I think I only got a year or two left of being able to do this, but we'll we'll let that go. So no no parables in John. Um, Really, comparatively speaking, not a lot of, like, healings, um, not a ton of his teaching. Again, John, the author John is trying to say, like, here's the very nature of who Jesus is, um, and, and here's why you ought to love him. And so, John, again, it's a very different style of book, really looking at his identity. And, and again, it's, it's a harder book to read. I'm um, just being honest up front. You, you should read it, and many times this week you should go, what did he mean by that? Like, what was being said? What was Jesus getting after? Um, and I'm just, I just encourage you, just chew on it. There's, there's a lot there. Um, the book breaks down into some pretty simple categories. It, it starts out, the first 18 verses, like we just read, is kind of an intro. Um, and then for the first 12 chapters after that, you get the entirety of Jesus' life. Um, you, you get the whole three years, rather, of his public ministry in the first 12 chapters, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that here in a second. And then the last half of the book is the final week of his life, where he again is saying, here's who I am, and then we get the, um, the crucifixion story and resurrection and whatnot. But as we're getting to know Jesus in the first 12 chapters, um, clearly I cannot summarize the whole thing, but I just want to pick out a few key things that I think really give us the heart of who Jesus is as John explains us um, the nature and character of his best friend. Uh, so he starts out with his first miracle. 
Uh, and this is uh, at a wedding, and it's turning water into wine. And uh, some of you will remember us studying this, and, and I did think of it last night. We were at a, I mean, just the, the wedding was fabulous. I mean, one of these weddings that you just go to, and you just kind of walk in, you're like, whoa. Like, there's gold silverware, right? Like, you want to kind of get something put in your pocket, and you're like, oh, that's not actual gold. But um, just beautiful, stunning, right? Weddings, what are weddings? Weddings are a moment right, where you are celebrating a couple, but you are also doing something and, you, and you're displaying, like, hey, we, we want to take care of you. Like, this is on us. This is all the people that we know and love, like our closest friends and family. People are coming from all over. And especially in that day, a wedding for the groom was the opportunity to show the bride's family, I am a competent uh, spouse, Like, I can love my wife well, I can provide for her, I can take care of her, and in the middle of this week-long ceremony, like, the party comes unraveled, they run out of wine, which would have been an end to the party, and ultimately would have brought a lot of shame to this young groom. It would have been this moment where um, the family would have thought, oh, you don't have what it takes to provide for my daughter, right? It would have been this incredibly shameful moment for the whole town, and Jesus walks into that moment right? That moment of a year's worth of preparation and toil and hardship and a lot of money. And Jesus says, hey, let me watch you in your shame. Turn this into your glory because I'm going to give you my glory here. And that's just the heart of Jesus, right? Like Jesus turning water into wine is not him like, let me get a bunch of friends. This is him saying, look at how incredibly lavish I am and how I'm going to care for you. And we get that immediately through his first miracle, Right after that, in chapter two, or in chapter three, um, we get Jesus in this interaction with Nicodemus, right? Where Nicodemus asks him, "What do you do to internal, to to uh, inherit eternal life?" And Jesus gives them this this story back of uh, ancient Israel when they were wandering in the desert. Some of you will remember this. They're wandering, and, and there's snakes that are poisonous, and some people are getting bit, and. And the command was to go to Moses, and Moses has a snake on a staff. And if you got bit, you were supposed to look at this staff, and you would be healed. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just like that, what you need to do is you need to look at me. I am the Son of Man, and you will be healed. You will have eternal life. And then we get the most famous of all verses, right? For God so loved the world. Right, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And, and we get this everlasting life theme over and over and over, starting here and then weaving throughout the whole entirety of that first 12 chapters and really leading up to his crucifixion. In chapter 4, we see Jesus and this woman at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. Right? You remember what happened when the nation split into two and, and you've got civil war and you've got people hating each other? Well, this is the people that the people of Israel hated, the people from the north, the Samaritans. And Jesus goes to this woman at a well and she says, you know, my husband. And Jesus calls her out and he says, I know you've been married five times and the guy you're living with isn't your husband. But then in gentleness and love, he says to her, I know what you want. Right? I know what any woman would want who's been married five times. He says, you want to be loved. You want to be cared for. You are clearly an abuse victim of some sort. I am here to give you my life. I am what you need. Right? See, we all come to church today with different felt needs. Right? Some of us come here feeling like, man, I just need a place to belong. Some of us feel like, I just need a little bit of a rest. Right? Some of us feel like, I need a new career. I need whatever. And Jesus says, yes, those are things, and I can provide for you some of these things, but the point isn't that you get what you think you need. The point is you get me. Right? And he gives this woman what she ultimately needs, and that is eternal life through belief in her. 
In chapter 5, we get this moment where Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda and he sees a crippled man and he goes up to him and he says to this crippled man, do you want to be well? Right? What a question. Do you want to walk? Do you want to be healed? Right? I, I love that. And I would ask that of us when you're coming into church today. What do you expect? Do you want to meet Jesus today? Right? Do you want to have an encounter with God? Do you want to have your life changed? And Jesus asks this question and then he heals him. And then we see the dark side of the religious folks. Because what happens when Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath? They get all upset and they're like, hey, healings here? I'm sorry, they happen by appointment, preferably from Sunday to Friday, not on our Sabbath Saturday. And we start to see the religious bent of folks who say, Jesus, you don't fit into our box. We don't like you. Right? And, and we're kind of forced to look in the mirror a little bit and say, what's the box that I have Jesus in? What is the box that I, I want? What are the things that I want from him? And we see in the healing of this young man and, and Jesus taking, I think, very purposefully doing this on the Sabbath. He's saying, no, I am Lord of the Sabbath. You don't get to decide what I am and what I am not. He continues on and he does things like feeding the 5,000. And after this, he says things like, I know you think you want bread, but what you really want is, is me. I am the bread of life. I am ultimately what you need. We get into this section in the middle of John where he has seven different I am statements Right? He says things like, um, I am the light of the world. Right? I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Right? Remember in the book of Ezekiel, right? remember before Jerusalem was captured, Ezekiel and a couple other people like Daniel, um, they were exiled to Babylon. And so he's sitting in some refugee camp 900 miles away from home where a few people are still left in home. And he's writing a messages. And he's saying, hey, I know what it's like to be under an oppressive government. I know what it's like to not have leaders who care for you. But guess what? Someday God himself will come as a good shepherd. He will be a good leader. He will care for you dearly. And Jesus comes and he says, I am that one who was promised in the book of Ezekiel. I am the good shepherd. I am what you want. I am what you need. And John reminds us of what Jesus says over and over. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Right? And then all this comes to a culmination when he heals Lazarus. He heals, his, he heals a man from the dead, and then he makes the ultimate claim. He says, I am God. And once again, the religious leaders ultimately kill him because of that claim. You can't be God. I don't want you to be God because the God that you think that you claim to be, I don't want anything to do with that. I want something different. And so they kill him. And ultimately, we're going to see uh, the whole story of his crucifixion, which every gospel writer writes, which is imperative. It's important because without Jesus dying, we don't have a Jesus who pays for sin, right? And so if Jesus doesn't die, great, you're a miracle worker, but who cares for the rest of humanity? Jesus dies for our sin, right? He came to seek and save that which is lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the second half of the book... Again, you, you see him dying, and towards the end, you see these just beautiful moments where Jesus is restoring people in hope and faith to who he really is. So from the beginning to the end, we see very clearly that John has um, a clear idea of what he wants people to understand. He wants us to understand that Jesus is God. He wants us to believe in Jesus, and in doing so, he wants us to know what it's like to be a child of God. And so we're just going to sit on that today. Um, there's, a, there's so many different ways that we could have done this. I think an obvious way would have been to look in the text itself and to say, well, what did John say? What did Jesus say when he says that I am the Son of God? And we can make that argument. But I, I want to do something a little bit different today. I want to zoom out a little bit. I want to look at it from a little different perspective. And, and I want to give a little bit of an apologetic for why we ought to believe that Jesus is God. 
right? Why we ought to put our faith and hope in him. And then what is it like for us today to be a child of God? And so that's, that's my hope today. Um, I, I want to do that because sometimes I think um, for many of us who grew up in the church, we can throw around these Christian phrases and, and not think a whole lot about them, especially things like, well, just believe in Jesus. Jesus is God. You're a child of him. But I want to say, well, what does that actually mean? What does that look like for us today? And so we're going to just chew on these three things. What does it look like for Jesus to be God? What does it look like to believe in him? And what does it look like to be a child of his? So let's look at that first one. Um, Jesus is God. I want to say two things about this claim, Jesus being God. And the first one is this. Every single human being on the planet believes in a religion. Every single human being. Uh, We all have a worldview. Everyone has an idea about how they think the world works. And from the beginning of time, humanity has always had the idea that humanity is broken, that something is wrong with us. Right? Everyone from the very beginning of time is able to look around and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. We've all been able to look in the mirror and say, that's wrong. And we all have different ideas about how we think we can fix what is broken. Right? And that's been true forever. It's true to this day, without exception. Um, John makes the claim that Jesus is the answer to what's broken and what's wrong. And he does this through the language of light and darkness. Right? We see this in chapter 1, starting in verse 9. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was saying, yeah, the world's in darkness, meaning we have a lot of questions about what's wrong and what's broken. The answer to those questions has come, bringing light, revealing what's true, showing us what is good. His name is Jesus. But I want to go back to the fact that we all have a religion. We all have a worldview. Uh, my question is, what religion and what worldview are we following? What are the options out there? And it's, it's pretty simple. There's only three options. Right Again, every human being has a worldview, and there's only three options. You are either a theist or an atheist or a pantheist, right? Those are the only options, right? So if you're a theist, you believe that God exists, that he exists outside of the natural world, um, that there is a God or many gods and And the reality is most of the world, somewhere around 85% of the world, are theists, right? Most of the major world religions, Christianity, Islam, um, Judaism, like we believe that there is a God who exists out there, right? Then there's the atheists, and atheists do not believe in an external God. They believe that everything is natural, that there's no such thing as supernatural, and that's about 10% of the world, right? And a majority of that probably coming from China, Uh, but a majority of, of the Uh, the world does not believe this, but it's still a a pretty big belief. And then you have pantheists. Pantheists believe that everything in the world is God, right? So this keyboard is God, and I'm God, and you're God, and everything together, it's just natural and supernatural all together. It's all God. And that's about 5% of the world believes this. Um, If you are an agnostic or if you are a nun, you're just lazy, um, you, you just haven't decided yet which of those three things is true, right? Because the reality is you have to believe one of those three things. And, you know, a lot of people that we interact with, like, like let's just be honest. We just don't think a lot about these types of things. And, and I say that, I kind of joke when I say you're just lazy, but the reality is, like, most people don't deeply think about the nature of mankind and the world that we live in. And so we just kind of float along and we're like, what's for dinner tomorrow, right? 
So, again, only three worldviews. And, and each of these worldviews contradicts one another, right? Because God cannot be altogether different and in the midst of it all and not exist all at the same time. So one of them has to be true, right? Only one of them has to be true. And I want to just give you a simple apologetic for why it makes sense that a theistic worldview is the most rational explanation of the world that we live in. I give this argument um, often when it comes to atheism because I just can't get past it. I don't see how anyone can get past this. But follow with me for just a minute. To accept atheism as true, you have to say that there is no such difference between something that is right and wrong. There is no intrinsic moral good and there is no intrinsic moral evil. Right? In other words, if someone were to abuse my daughter, it is not morally right and it's not morally wrong. It's just up to whoever has an idea about an incident that happened. And that's not a livable world. Right? No one lives that way. No one lives in a world like this. We all know that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong, regardless of what popular opinion may be. Therefore, an atheistic worldview just is not a great model and no one wants to live that way. Right? In a similar vein, I would say to accept pantheism, you take a horrible event that happens and you have to say, well, God's involved in that. That's all of God because God is all in everything. And that's a pretty miserable world, right? A world where God is war and God is hardship and he is abuse. Like, I don't think that's a world I want to be a part of. Therefore, I think uh, theism is the only example Uh, the only worldview that actually makes sense because in a theistic worldview, you say, no, there is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as moral evil and moral goodness. There is such a thing as someone who exists outside of, uh, of how I encounter the world on a daily basis, right? We live in a moral world. Therefore, there ought to be a moral lawgiver and that giver is God. And, and, you know, throughout the world religions, people call that God different things, But ultimately, I'm going to say that that is the only reasonable explanation of having a God that exists outside of you and I. Now, John, in his book, he's going to make the argument over and over and over that the God that you want is Jesus. And if you think about it for just a minute, um, if you're familiar with the Christian faith, even if you were to make up the God that you really want, like, ultimately, you're going to land at Jesus. Like, ultimately, like... Jesus is so much better than we ever could ask or imagine. Right, so, you, so you're telling me that I can have eternal life just by believing in you? Like, where's the catch? Like, in, in some ways, it's too good to be true. Right? Like, you, you, if you kind of pay attention and look at the other religions of the world, you're like, I, I don't even know that I would want that God. I mean, the, the God of the Bible is incredible, and this is why over and over and over, John's just going to say, This is who he is. He wants to give us a real picture of of God's heart for humanity, uh, of God's heart for individuals, of God, of his power, of his love. He gives us a very clear argument and apologetic for why we should want to believe that Jesus is God. I'm not going to make the argument here, but I'll let you chew on that this week, why Jesus is God, but ultimately... I think it's pretty clear that there has to be a God. You can chew on what God you want to believe in. I think Jesus makes the most sense. So then what does it mean to believe in God? I think that's a a statement that we can make easily. We can just throw it out there. Just believe in God. Well, what does that mean? 
Right? What does believe in God mean? Uh, and, and where is faith and belief in this? Like, are they different? Are they the same? Um, is there a difference between believing God and believing in God? Right? Does it mean that I have to believe that Jesus is God? Does it mean that I have to believe that Jesus died on a cross? Does it mean uh, that I have to believe that he was a real person? What does it mean to believe in God? Again, I think we can look at these simple statements, and, and I think we can just kind of gloss over them quickly, but I want to spend just a minute thinking about what does it mean to believe in God. Um, I'll just say that there is a distinction between believing Jesus and believing in Jesus, and I want to flesh this out a little bit. Right? In, in this distinction, believing Jesus means that you can believe that he exists. Right? You can believe that Jesus is the God that was promised from Genesis chapter 3, that he died, that he rose again. You can believe all that and still not believe in Jesus. Right? You, you can believe that he was a historical figure. You can, again, you can believe that he's God and still not believe in him. Right? So what does it mean to believe in him? It means to put your faith in him. Right? Let me give you kind of a silly example. Like you can believe, like you can look into the sky and see an airplane flying, and you can believe that airplanes fly. Right? You can just believe that, you can see it, you can experience it. Um, but, to, but to experience it, rather, you have to have faith and you have to actually get on the thing. Right? You have to get on the airplane and experience it. So you can believe in something without putting your faith in something. Uh, one of the early examples of fully believing in something, putting your faith in something, we get in the story of Abraham. Right? You remember all the way back in early Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man Abraham, and he calls an old man. He's 75, and he takes him outside, and he says, hey, I want you to look up at the stars. You see the stars in the sky. That is going to be your generational family over and over. I'm going to give you so many children, and your family is going to bless the world. And Abraham's sitting here saying, well, there's one problem. Uh, we haven't been able to have kids for like 55 years, uh, and my wife's not young, right? And God says, trust me. And what does Abraham do? In faith, he follows the Lord. He says, okay, I'll leave everything. I'll leave my hometown. I will listen to you. I will obey you. I will follow you. I will love you. And Romans 4 and Hebrews 11 tells us that his faith credited him as righteousness and he was saved because he believed in him enough that he was willing to follow. Right? And that following is not always easy. Right? You, you think about like, that's a, that's a hard promise from God to Abraham. That's not one of those things where you just go, yep, makes a lot of sense. At 75 and 65, we're going to have kids, numerous as the stars in the sky. There's, there's a, a, a level of faith that you just have to step out and say, I'm going to trust what I don't understand, right? And that's true with Christianity as well. There's a level of Christianity where you just go, really? There's a God who loves me like that? That's crazy. But it's incredible at the same time, right? But again, it's not easy because think about what happened to Abraham. How long did he go without kids after God promised he would have them? 25 years, right? When your wife's pushing 90 and you're going, God, you made me a promise. I kind of like moved my whole family. I put my faith and trust in you. I believe in you, but what's going on? 25 years is a long time. And God's still pulling him out saying, do you trust me? Do you believe in me? Will you follow me? And ultimately Abraham does. And the final promise that we get is if you put your faith in Jesus, who is God, you will become a child. You will have eternal life. That's the final promise, and this is where we're going to land. What does it mean to be a child of God? 
I said it earlier, every single person on the planet has a religion. Right? All of us look around and we can see what's broken and we want to fix it and we put a lot of effort into fixing things. Right? This is not hard to observe in the culture that we live in today. We're obsessed with finding problems and trying to fix them. And we all have our own ideas of what the problems are that need fixing. And the problem is, is that we're getting a little bit exhausted with fixing problems because once we fix one, another one rises up. Right? And then we fix that one, and well, let's be honest, we don't actually ever fix them. We just kind of go on to a new topic. And that's exhausting. Because if God doesn't exist, it's all up to us to fix all the problems. Right? If God doesn't exist, we're orphans, we're alone, and it's a depressing world to look out there at all the problems that exist. It's depressing to look in the mirror at all the problems that exist, knowing like, is this up to me? Right? That is a depressing world that, let me tell you, you want to talk about bring on anxiety and depression, bring on hopelessness. I do not think it is coincidental that at the rate that we are walking away from the Lord, we're lonely and depressed and sad because we're alone at that point. Right? We do not have a Father who loves us. But at the point where you recognize that you are loved by God, that the world that exists is not under your control but under His, you want to know how much life and peace that will give you? You want to know how much life and peace I will give you knowing that, you know what, even if things are hard right now, I do have an eternity forever, which is why John's going to say over and over and over, you have eternal life. Because remember how John lived. Now you, some of you know the story of John and, and what happened to him and how he was ultimately banished and how all the other followers of his with Jesus were killed. Like that's a lonely life, but it's not a lonely life when you know you got eternity coming. It's a life where you say, I can look forward to being a son or a daughter of the king because I know that, yeah, right now it may be hard, but I got something better coming. And it's not all up to me. It's not all up to me. And so as we close, I just ask you this. Three simple questions. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Right? If you're not there, you believe that something is God. Right? The reality is you probably think yourself is God and That's a miserable world, ultimately. You do not want that world, right? Do you believe in Jesus, not just believe him? I think it can be easy to come to church and and to believe him. I think it can be easy. You know, Jesus' own brother, James, he's going to say in chapter 2, I think verse 7, he says, even the demons believe and shudder, right? You can believe Jesus, but do you believe in him? Have you put your faith in him? Have you given your life, and John's going to say over and over and over, to love him, to obey him, to follow him. And then lastly, are you receiving the rewards of knowing what it's like to feel the freedom of being a son or a daughter, right? Because that's a sweet freedom to be a kid. It's a sweet freedom to know, like, I don't have to carry the responsibilities of the world because I've got a father who does, right? And so the invitation for each of those would would be to say, God, you are God. I can't do it all. You've done it for me. I will give my life to follow you. Would you pray with me, Father God? I I thank you for this book of John. Jesus, I I thank you that as we open up your book this week, we are going to see over and over and over the sweetness of what it's like to know you. Jesus, I'm going to I'm going to just say, I know there are people in this room who potentially believe you, but don't believe in you. That's an exhausting life. God, it's a hard life to, to, to feel the weight of getting all the social justice issues right and 
to get all our politics right and to care for the right things at the right time. God, to be gods of this world is, is not a task that we're up to. It's not a task that we're up for. God, when we try to do that, we take you off the throne, we put ourselves on the throne, and, and we realize the weight of that crown is not a weight that we can carry, and it will crush us. God, I, I pray that we would be a church that recognizes our position as sons and daughters, that we can be free with you, that we can say, you know what, it's not my responsibility to care for everything of the world. Like, I can give that care to you because you're a God who does care. Jesus, we want to be a church who follows you and who loves you dearly. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.